Welcome back, everybody. It's Mark Steiner right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We're dipping down into the Steiner Show archives in honor of St. Patrick's Day coming up this week. We listened to a conversation I had in 2013 with Irish-American author Janine Cummins about her novel, The Crooked Branch. This novel follows the lives of two women, two mothers, one in modern-day New York and the other in Ireland during the Great Famine. You'll enjoy the conversation, I'm sure. Janine. Yes. So, so Janine Cummings, what happened was that uh, we had a Facebook chat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> New book came out, and I uh, couldn't wait to read it. And um, someone coming to Baltimore, and I said, well, then we should just do this together in Baltimore, live. Mm-hmm. And she's one of my favorite authors. Um, and one of our favorite authors, Sherman Alexie, is uh, in completely in love with uh, Janine Cummings' writings. And um, was excited we were doing this together when we kind of emailed back and forth. And uh, so, Janine. Yes. You look so different since the last I saw you. Well, I'm significantly less pregnant than the last time <laughs> you saw me. <laughs> when I went on tour for The Outside Boy, I was nine months pregnant. I literally gave birth to my second daughter 10 days after my last event. So, all of the really unattractive photographs from my last book tour are uh, still on my website, and you can see how rotund I was at the time, but <laughs> I am back. Like your character. Yes. She is also quite rotund at the moment, post-baby. Post yes, post-baby. Why don't we um, start with a little taste? Okay. Should I start with a historic section? Yeah. Or a, okay. So I'll start by reading the prologue. It's very brief. Um and just to give you an idea of what's going on in the book, there there are two narratives, duel, dueling narratives. There is a historical narrative that it follows the trials and tribulations of a woman named Ginny Doyle who was living during the famine times in the west of Ireland, in Mayo. And we're following the really horrific choices that she is facing about how to keep her children alive in the, in the sort of worst moments of the famine. So the prologue opens with her. It's Ireland, August 1846. It all happened in one night. One wicked, godforsaken night in August, and they couldn't believe it. The way they took to their beds in the evening and everything was grand and ordinary. Hungry, yes, but ordinary. They'd already been hungry for a year. They were getting by, hanging on for the coming crop. So that whole doomed island of people, they slept, naive in their myriad dreams. Their limbs tangled around lovers, their sleeping children twitching and murmuring nearby, the dying turf fire shadows stretching along the thatching above. They slept. For no one could imagine the horror they would waken to. Not a one of them could have foretold that noxious, murderous fog that came in the night and strangled the light from their moon-bright skies. It rolled in from the sea, from God knows whence it came, but it was the Atlantic waves that heaved that fog up onto the western shores of Ireland. From there it crept and slithered, low to the ground like a vaporous serpent. All along the soil, up hills and ridges and mountains it climbed, breathing itself into every hollow. And then down again it rolled into the slopes and glens and valleys, staying low, low all the time, clinging to the ground, hugging to the knobby roots of trees, skulking along the lifeless skins of locks. They didn't notice that pungent bitterness in the dark, beyond their walls and turf fires, beyond the milky breath of their sleeping children. They slept while that mortal fog stole into their bright green country and grew like a merciless stain across the darkened land. It killed every verdant thing it touched. It was silent when Ginny wakened in the morning. No cock crowed, no dog barked. Most of the country's sheep and cattle had already been slaughtered or sold for food, but those skinny specimens who remained were silent in the fields. Even the birds were struck mute. She stirred herself from sleep, startled by the lateness of the daylight. She arose without waking the others. Now look, there she is, standing in her doorway, the golden thatch drooping low above her in the moist morning light. Her red petticoat hangs down her legs. Her bare feet are pressing into the cold flagstone beneath. She is gazing out. There's a lone magpie in the blackthorn tree, speechless with terror. The first sound is a strangled cry that escapes her throat. It's not a word, just a simple, unadorned cry, an anguish sound. 
and then her babbies are stirring behind her, still innocent for these few moments. But Raymond is on his feet now, untangling himself from the blanket. He is beside his wife, his hand on her shoulder, his voice a terrible gasp in her ear. God help us. And there they are, their fingers roped fiercely together, their bare feet leaving the flagstone, stepping out, their weight sinking slightly, the leftover dew from that lethal fog licking their toes and ankles, until they are in the middle of their slaughtered field. They are decimated. The black and broken reeking stalks of their potatoes are all around, as far as they can see, up to the ridge and down through the sloping glen. Ginny turns in circles, looking for any trace of life, a single green leaf, a purple blossom, a breath of prayer. But there is nothing, only the stench of death now rising up from the soil, clinging to the thick air like a fetid warning. Everything, everything is rot. She looks back at her children, the four of them gathering now in the doorway, already hungry for their breakfast. They are stretching sleep from their warm little bodies. They are shaking the dreams from their eyelids. She might have closed their blameless eyes that very moment, might have saved and sealed those lingering dreams inside their heads for sustenance, for nourishment, but she didn't know. Even in that moment of bottomless panic, she could never conceive of the kind of suffering that would follow. <clears throat> the end. Thank you. <laughs> uh, one of the things I'll say is that, that when you write, this is your third book, mm -hmm. they're all very different. Yes, much to my editor's chagrin. <laughs> but all written very differently. Yes. In different styles. Yes. Did that just, I mean, did that just happen? Was that something that you did consciously? I think I did it unconsciously but out of necessity <clears throat> after my first book, A Rip in Heaven. That Which book, was nonfiction. It was nonfiction. My first book was a memoir about a horrific trauma that my family suffered when I was a teenager. And my brother, who was the only survivor of a violent crime, asked me to write his story. And originally I said, you must be crazy. And then... <laughs> After a while, uh, we talked about it, and I decided it was a good thing to do. And and so I did it, and I'm glad that I did, but it was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was incredibly painful. I learned things I never wanted to know about what happened that night, um, about the four men who visited this horror on my family, um, about what my brother went through. So when that book was finished and it went out in the world and I had to go on book tour and talk about it and do publicity for it, um, it was so much harder than I ever imagined. And I knew from that moment that I could never write nonfiction again. Um, and I also knew that I always wanted to write stories about injustice, you know, that addressed some wrong that I saw in the world that I felt like people weren't noticing. So, which was very much the driving force behind that book as well. So when I went to write my, my first novel, The Outside Boy, I had to, by necessity, sort of get as far away from autobiographical stuff as I could. And so what better than to write about a 12-year-old Irish gypsy boy in the 1950s? Like, it made perfect sense to a me. A tinker. Yeah, a, t a tinker, a pavy gypsy in, in Ireland. And I was familiar with this community, and I felt like they didn't exist enough in literature. And where they did exist, they were poorly treated and... So I wrote a story about this little boy who just sang to me, you know? And so that, I think it's really the voice that is the most different in the three books. You had beautiful music that went with that book. I did. I I always have a soundtrack when I write a book. Um, I'll have to bring you a copy of the Crooked yeah. Branch soundtrack now. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah. The, the, and this one, I mean, and this is again... It almost feels like this book is in some ways, even though it's fiction, it's touching on you as this mm -hmm. young mother. Yes. And touching on your roots. For sure. They go deep into Ireland. Yes, they do. And we have family who uh, lived during the famine times in Ireland, you know, um, who came over on the coffin ships in the 1840s, as do probably every Irish-American and <coughs> people who don't even know their their roots in Ireland. Um, they probably come from the famine. And 
So in that ways, I felt a greater sense of ownership of this story than I, I did perhaps for The Outside Boy because this is really an American story. It's the story of the origins of Irish America. Um, and in that way, it's the story of the origins of this particular Irish-American girl, Magella, who, like me, is uh, finding her her transition into motherhood to be more difficult than she expected. And she's a, sort of an overachiever, and she's a positive thinker, and she loves kids, and she wants this baby, and she has this baby, and then she's like, oh, <laughs> what did I just do? And... Um, She's not very good at it, and it's the first time in her life that she discovers that she's really not very good at something, and it's the most important thing. And so she's terrified and overwhelmed, and um, so it's the story really of her trying to find her balance in the wake of those discoveries and how she draws strength from the mothers who came before her, um, despite all of their failures as well. In certain right. maternal and, ways. Or we think of as failures. Yes. Yeah. And it's funny. I'm so happy that you make that distinction because part of the reason I was driven to write this book is that I feel like, you know, we've had this yummy mummy culture and I'm very <laughs> happy to see that it's dying now. It seems to be over <clears throat> or on its way out. Um, it's not realistic to have like your hair blown out and your perfect manicure, you know, toting the baby on your size four hip all the time. When in fact you're just covered in vomit and poop and puke and this baby is crying and you haven't seen a like you haven't even seen a bottle of shampoo in a week, never mind getting a facial, you know? Um and I just feel like it's time for a more honest, raw dialogue in our culture about parenting. And how hard it is and yes it's wonderful it's amazing it's the best thing I've ever done but holy cow it's hard and we don't do ourselves any favors by pretending that it's not you know? I mean yeah I mean it's getting Magella gets away from the Hollywood mom yes it's a real mom I mean we see these pictures of you know movie actresses who have this baby and all of a sudden they're all of a sudden they're wearing bikinis and rain down the beach yeah, again like eight weeks later right right with their personal <laughs> trainer and all the other things that go on oh, with their lives yeah uh, which is not real. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but this particular character, they're both very powerful characters in their own right. They're very different. Very different, yeah. I mean, I, we, I can see some people, we, you know, when you first read Magella, you think, as we talked about a minute ago, that she's this whiny, you know. Is that what you think, Mark? No, no, I said when I first, <laughs> first saw her. That's what I thought. But then she wasn't. Yeah. But then she was this person who was going through <clears throat> this torment. Mm-hmm about what happened to her, how the baby was born, her life drained out of her in terms of her creativity, mm -hmm. stuck in this house. Yeah. And she's really angry at herself. She doesn't understand why it's not all rainbows and unicorns because she bought into that yummy mummy thing and she thought that's how she was supposed to be. And she, Magella, the fictional character, not me... <laughs> Labored for 28 hours, pushed for three hours, and then had a C-section. And then when she got home from the hospital, people said things to her like, oh, you took the easy way out. You had a C-section. And she wanted to kill them. <laughs> and um, it's idiotic, I understand, from, from the space of five years looking back on myself in that moment that I felt like a failure. But in fact, I did. I had, I felt like my body failed the first test of motherhood. Here I was, this young, healthy go-getter, like I was having this baby and I was not going to be one of those women that had a C-section. And then I had a C-section. Um, and not only did I have a C-section, but I, had to, I got to recover from labor and a C-section. It was, um, and, you know, I didn't even realize what was going on with me, really. But it was like six months before I could talk about having a C-section without sobbing. Um, I knew that I was disappointed, but I didn't understand that I felt, like, guilty and ashamed and how silly it was to feel like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think 
part of the reason I wanted to write about that experience was like to forgive myself. And so that other young mothers who are going through this and who are experiencing these feelings can sort of know like, this is normal. Like it's, this is how, you know, it's not something to feel ashamed about. You know, it's, it's part of the process of how we become mothers or it can be. And the complexity of motherhood here, which I really, one of the things that was really so full of tension that I liked in this book was both the, the, um, her trials and tribulations she went through as a young mother trying to bring her psyche back in place, Mm -hmm. but finding this diary, which connected to her foremothers Mm -hmm. and their own struggles. Yes. I mean, I was, I remember the one early in the book, there's this piece where Ginny finds this woman, one of her neighbors, mm-hmm. hiding in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Everybody's starving. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody can find enough food to eat. And the mother, I think, I believe her name was Mary, Mary, mm-hmm. started sobbing, talking about she th- thought about killing her child. To st- it made me think of stories I read that we hear from women who were in slavery in America mm-hmm. <clears throat> who would kill their children rather than allow them to live in slavery. Yeah. And it was the same feeling I got reading that piece of that book that, because there's so much about the, the power and contradictions and, uh, of motherhood that people go through that we're afraid to really yeah. talk about. Yeah. And I think, I mean, when I was doing the research for this book, I read so many stories. The choices that these women had to face, I mean, honestly, they're beyond my power to comprehend. I had nightmares for weeks when I was researching this stuff because they faced the choice of smothering their children in their sleep so that they would not have to starve to death. It was a foregone conclusion that those kids were going to die. And... The mother had to make the choice of whether or not to end their suffering sooner for them. And then in this incredibly Catholic country, to face the idea of their own mortality following that and facing St. Peter with the death of her children on her hands. I was like, I'm going to cry just talking about it. I, I can't even imagine what that is to go through. And I think there was something cathartic and healing for me in reading just how horrific the conditions were under which these women were practicing motherhood and they survived it, you know, or they didn't. But they had the strength to get through it one way or the other. And that, you know, which... It kind of puts your modern-day, contemporary, comfortable angst into stark relief. (laughs) Well, that was part of the starkness of the book, too, between the two women. Right. Yeah, and I think that's part of why people have a difficult time feeling sorry for Magella, because she is a little whiny, and she's a little bit like, poor me, I have this crying baby, I have a great house and a great husband and a good job, but I'm really sad. And then the alternating chapters are, you know, this woman who is facing absolute catastrophe in the most basic, fundamental way in her life. And um, I think that part of the reason I wanted to write, I've always wanted to write about the famine, and I, it was a, an incredibly daunting task to think that you you have the c- capacity to do justice to the suffering of those people. Like you have to have an incredible raging ego, to, <laughs> which thankfully I have. So, um, <laughs> um, but I I just felt like the way into the story, the only way into that story for me was through motherhood. And I also knew, you know, you can't preach at your reader or they will close the book. So I had to find a way to balance all of that heavy suffering with, with, um, you know, a sense of relief for the reader. And I think, I hope that that's what Magella's story is. She is, for all her whininess, I think very funny. Yeah. 
just like me. She's so, funny. <laughs> she curses a she, lot. She's a potty mouth. I don't know where that came from. No, not, but where does that come from? I don't know. The Irish <laughs> roots, perhaps. Um, but you know, it's a. Uh, <laughs> It's a, it's a mystery. Um, but you captured. Well, here's one thing I did that hit me on besides. I mean, I have, I have daughters, nothing but daughters, and a bunch of grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And I was there for all these births. You were yeah. in the room. Well, for my, well, yes, for some of them. That's amazing. Um, and my uh, my daughter Chelsea, all of her kids were born at home with a midwife. Wow. So we were all like smack dab in the middle of it. So watching childbirth and that first scene where you open up in the hospital in 28 hours, because a lot of women say their first birth, the birth of their first child, I should say, is the hardest one. It's mm-hmm. the, usually the longest one. It's the most intense one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and you know, you could feel it coming through the page. Yeah. It was that I, could, and I can remember the screams coming from, it, just, it hit me really hard just reading it, yeah. just listening to hearing that. But you captured that along with, the famine, and it, it, one of the things that struck me about the parts of the famine was, is that you, the humanity and the oppression, yeah, and how they fit together. That it was just so. I mean, I, you you felt you, I felt myself in Ireland, could see it, could feel it, you know, digging in the earth, every potato rotten, families being broken apart, not being able to pay their rent. Do they? Enter this political struggle and right. say no to the landlords. We're not going to pay your bloody English rents. You know, it was just, it was really, I was, uh, it just, those chapters drew you in. You didn't know where they were going to end up. Thank you. I um, I hope that when you were reading them, you felt angry. Yes. Because, good, you know, instead of just sad or no, it was desperate. Anger. Because why I've always wanted to write about the famine is I think there's a really sort of almost untold story. It's something that Irish people are very aware of, but in Irish America, it, they're not so aware of how preventable the famine was. Um, there was food being exported from Ireland the entire duration of the famine. They were exporting livestock, cattle, sheep, oats, wheat, um, shipping it over to England, and the Irish couldn't afford to buy it back off of the, their landlords. And so there came a point where they were shipping it under armed guard because one quarter of the Irish population was dead. <laughs> and why the f*** did that happen? Like, why is it happening in Somalia today? In a global economy, why are people allowed to starve when we have enough food in the world? It should never happen. Only one crop failed in Ireland. It was not like a complete, you know, decimation of the whole land. It was the potato. Every other crop was safe. Um, Who controlled the agriculture? Who controlled the land? It Who was controlled politics. the food? It was all politics. It was politics of food. And the talk in Parliament at the time was that mm-hmm. this would be the divine answer to the population problem in Ireland, that it was God's will to cull the Irish, and so they didn't help. Um, you know, there are, there are murals on the walls of the buildings in Belfast where I lived for a time after college that say there was no famine. They call it Angortamor, which means the great hunger in Irish, because the, the Irish people were allowed to starve. It wasn't for want of food that they died. And I, it, it um, the, also one of the other things you do in this book I, that I like philosophically and also kind of mystically, which you have a bent towards, um, <laughs> is thank you. <laughs> it is a thank you. I was, that's, that's a compliment. Okay. <clears throat> um, is is uh, the connections that we don't understand uh, between generations? It's interesting. As before, I came here tonight. I did an hour of my show mm-hmm. live, and. Uh, there was artists, and they were all African-American artists on the show, and one of them said, it made me think of your book, so this connection's right there, that he said, I'm an artist, and then I realized in my family, generations back, there were artists. Mm-hmm. Something we don't understand, skip through it, 
and touch me. Yeah. And when I'm connected to something that I don't even understand. Yeah. And it's the same thing with finding the diary. For sure. And her connection to Ginny. Yeah. And there's this, there's this connection you don't, you can't even articulate it sometimes. Right. And I believe in that. I believe in genetic memory. I don't know if I believe in it entirely, literally. <clears throat> Maybe I, I do. I think it's something that as a new mother we're, pro- we're prone to thinking about. The mothers who came before us and some of the crazy ones. We all have probably like at least one crazy mother like in a couple generations back. <laughs> hopefully not like the immediately above you but um i for example had one mean grandmother um who i loved but she messed up her kids like eight of them and um when you have this little baby and you suddenly are seeing things in yourself that you didn't know were there before and you're scared you start thinking about maria grandma maria and why was she like that? And is that in me? And my brother is nodding his head, yes, that is in me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really, um, I think it's a provocative question for a writer, and I think it's a, a very natural question to ask yourself as a new parent. I think those are the kinds of things that it's probably good to consider and worry about, because maybe that's a way of, Staving off the crazy. That's Janine Cummins talking about her novel, The Crooked Branch. Gotta take a short break, stay with us, we'll come back. We'll hear the rest of that conversation. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We're bringing you a segment from our Steiner Show archives where I spoke with Irish-American author Janine Cummings about her novel, The Crooked Branch. This is the second part of our discussion with her. Stay with us and listen to the rest. We should introduce everybody to Magella. Oh, okay. Um, or whatever you like to do. I mean, yeah, I like, piece you like. Just, I like that. I, yeah. I'll read a little snippet. Um, <clears throat> this is like when the baby is a couple weeks old. And her husband, Leo, has gone back to work. And uh, she's a little desperate. (laughs) Leo comes home early because it's Tuesday and the restaurant is quiet, but I don't hear him come in because Emma is screaming. She's been crying since 12 minutes past 5 o'clock and it is now 7.38. When I see Leo's face appear, I am so happy I could weep. So I do. I weep. And he sweeps heroically into the room and scoops that baby out of my arms, and he's talking to me, but I couldn't tell you what he's saying, not for all the money in the world. And I look down at myself now that Emma is safe in her father's arms, and I notice how I'm shaking, and my shapeless green shirt is all wet, and I don't even know what that liquid is. Snot, tears, saliva, milk, I don't even know who that liquid came from. I go through the kitchen and open the door into our little mudroom. I go through that mud mudroom with its strange sloped ceiling and low-hanging light fixture, and I open the back door of our house. I don't flip on the back porch light because I don't want to attract mosquitoes. I step outside, and I try to close the door firmly behind me, but I end up slamming it instead. I sit on the top step and plant my elbows onto my knees. Everything is shaking. How long have I been shaking? It is twilight in my back garden, and the painted white brick of the apartment building next door is glowing a soft purple. Leo and I haven't managed to clear out this garden yet. It's overgrown and wild beyond that square patch of concrete where our little table and chairs sit, our deluxe barbecue. That machine was one of the only things that excited Leo about moving to Queens. A real, honest-to-God, macho, sleek, oversized suburban barbecue. I stare at it now, blurry because I'm still crying. My head is pounding. How could I have been so wrong about all this, about how it was going to be living here, raising a family? A lone cricket creaks pathetically somewhere in that tangle of mad foliage. I tell it to shut the f*** up. (laughs) Then, a giggle. I look up at one of the windows in that white painted brick, and a little face is shining down at me. I heard you say a bad word. He's a kid, maybe five or six, in one of the second floor apartments. Yeah, sorry, I say. I liked it. This kid is the best thing that's happened to me all day. Maybe Emma will be like this one day, bright and smiley and not screaming. I'm supposed to be asleeping, the kid tells me. My name is Franklin. I nod. I'm Magella. He stares down at me for a while longer, and we don't talk, but I feel like he's the best friend I've ever had. 
Good night, he says after a few more minutes. Good night, I tell him, and I hear him yawn as he drops away from the screen. I don't want to go back inside in case Emma is still crying, but the mosquitoes are starting to swarm, so I stand up and take some deep breaths before heading back in. It's quiet, except for the sound of Leo's voice. I make my way to the office, and Leo looks up at me. Hang on, he says to someone on the computer, and then to me. She's asleep. (laughs) Are you f***ing kidding me, I think, but do not say. To Leo, I say, wow. Yeah, I'm just talking to Jeff on Skype. Hi, Magella. I hear the voice of Leo's brother coming from our computer speakers. Hi, Jeff, I say without stepping in front of the camera because I am such a disgusting mess. I cannot possibly appear on Skype without a shower, a whiskey, and hundreds of dollars worth of spa treatments. I'll be out in a minute. I brought you a bottle of wine in the fridge, Leo says. For this, I will give him sex. Thank you, I say, and I slip out of the room and back toward the kitchen. I can still hear them chatting as I work the corkscrew into the bottle top. So, it's totally amazing being parents, right? Jeff says. He and his wife have been thinking about starting a family, too. They live in Colorado. Yeah, it's awesome, Leo says. (laughs) But has it completely just turned your whole world upside down or what? Jeff says. No, not really, Leo says. (laughs) Not really? I put the bottle down so I won't drop it. I step closer to the door to eavesdrop. You know, life is pretty much the same. Now we just have a baby, Leo is saying. (laughs) That's a man talking. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much the same? What is he, insane? Or maybe he's just lying because he wants parenthood to seem fantastic so that Jeff and his wife will hurry up and do it too. Maybe he wants to trick them. But I hear him saying that the biggest change of all, really, is living in Queens, and I just don't feel like you could make this up. I step back to my wine bottle, attack the cork with renewed vigor. It pops, and I take a large gulp straight from the bottle before finding my glass. I install myself on the couch with a remote control and the baby monitor, and after a few minutes, Leo closes up the office and joins me on the couch. You're home early, I say. Just in the nick of time, he says. Yeah, you're telling me. How long was she crying, he asks. Before you came in? I don't know, two and a half, three hours? In fact, I know exactly how long it was because I watched the clock when she cries. It was two hours and 26 minutes. But I always round up when Leo asks because I need him to understand the enormity of it. I could, in fact, tell him that she had been crying for 17,000 hours, and that would feel closer to the emotional truth of the situation. Oh, that's awful, he says. I guess she just wore herself out because she conked out after about five minutes when I came in. I grip my wine so hard that the pads of my fingers turn yellow beneath the glass. He takes it from me, tries a sip, hands it back. Then he walks into the kitchen to find himself a glass. Hey, Leo, let me ask you something. Yeah? There's nothing so beautiful as the sound of a wine bottle glugging into a glass to soothe a frazzled, exhausted mind. I close my eyes and listen to him pour. He plumps down beside me on the couch. Did you mean what you said to your brother about life being pretty much the same except now we just have a baby? Leo takes a sip of his wine and thinks it over. Yeah, I guess I did. Oh. But now he's looking at me thoughtfully like it's just dawned on him this moment. I guess it's not like that for you, huh? No, I say. That is Magella. <laughs> Magella, that was good. Thank you. That was good. You know, one of the things that this is uh, not about Magella, just popped my hands. We were talking earlier that when you write about the famine, mm-hmm. one of the things that struck me was I <laughs> actually wrote a note on top of the page there about um, uh, about Guatemalans and Mexicans making their way through those places and. Getting coming to the United States mm. about saying goodbye mm-hmm. to someone they love mm-hmm. because they have to figure out how to survive and get the money back mm-hmm. and get back to them if they can mm-hmm. or try to get them over to where they are. Right. And that, that's when I felt, I felt that connection between the famine of these 1840s and people being driven out of their homes, with, mm-hmm. no matter where that could be. It could right. be here, it could be from Africa to Europe, it could be from Asia to anywhere else, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. It's funny you brought that up because that's what my next book is about, immigration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, maybe that's where it dawned on me as well. And the, <laughs> um, but it's about contemporary immigration and about a, a young woman who falls in love with a Mexican. And actually she falls in love with a seven-year-old Mexican. Seven-year-old? Yeah, a little boy. A little boy. Gotcha. Yeah, she falls in love with a little boy. And 
his big brother as well. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, it's about the logistical and emotional and intellectual difficulties of immigration um, and of immigration policy in this country right now. But also that sense that we seldom have as Americans nowadays, that there is a portal you can pass through in life. And after you go through that physical portal, you you may never go back. Um, I have a lot of friends who are immigrants, many illegal, many legal, um, mostly from Ireland, but from many other places mm-hmm. in Latin America as well. And And then I have, on the other hand, I have so many smart, progressive, open-minded, spiritual, good, good friends who sort of think that, like, we need to just shut those borders down and, like, send all the immigrants back where they came from. And I don't understand how, how all of that can coexist. So I think the challenge for me always as a writer is to find a way into the humanity of a story that will make people understand it or contemplate it from a perspective that they may not have considered before. Um, So that's what's motivating me to write about immigration. That's important. I think that that one thing that I think that was the humanness of that move and that people can read, people can read that part of this book and see what people went through, the pain they went through to get to where they had to do and what they had to do for their children, what they had to do due to their children. Yeah. Maybe due to their children. Yeah. Um, that that pain is not something that just lived in the 1840s. It's, it's everywhere. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's part of existence. Yeah. As much as Magella's part of existence. Yes. I think so. And I think it, you're right that it's still, hap- it's still happening. Um you know, everyone has heard about the American wakes that they used to have in Ireland when when an Im- when someone had to emigrate, when someone had to leave the country. They would actually wake the person on the eve of their departure because they knew with a dead certainty that they would never see that person again. It was saying goodbye permanently to this loved one. And that's what we're talking about when Magella is faced with this choice for her children of splitting her family up, when... They decide, you know, at the very beginning of the book that one of them has to go to America, and that will be it for them. Ginny, Ginny, you mean? Ginny and right. her husband. Right, right. Yeah, they ha- they have to make this decision that one of them needs to go, um, or they're all going to starve. So, um, it's it's part of the story that I think from from where we sit in our in our in this moment in our culture as Americans, thank God we don't have to contemplate that very often and so maybe it's a little too easy for us to say like shut those borders down because we don't have to consider what would it be to be in that place where there is violence all around and violent poverty all around and there is no way to make a life for your children except to pay some very shady person to throw you into the back of an oil tanker and just hope that you wake up in America you know um so it was the coffin ships in the 1840s. That's what they called them, coming from Ireland to America. Right. The coffin ships. They called them the coffin ships because <clears throat> so many people died on them. I mean, you had like a 50-50 chance of making it to America with the typhoid, rampant typhus and famine dropsy and the disease on board those ships was just horrific. Um, but the fact is, it's still going on. You know, much like famine is still happening and it's preventable. That same kind of um, violent rending of families that that doesn't need to happen. You mm-hmm. know, if we could just think of smarter policy. Like, it shouldn't be... Politics shouldn't have this kind of violent effect on people. Um, and sadly, it does. So, um, I want to find another part of your book to read. Well, maybe I'll read the saying goodbye to Raymond. So, Ginny and her husband Raymond have made the decision that Raymond has to leave. Ireland, and he has to leave Ginny and their four children, who have nothing to eat. And it takes ten weeks to cross that ocean. And he has to just get there as fast as he can and start sending money back as quick as he can. 
So they're taking a real risk, but they have no options. Um, so I'm going to read the part where they say goodbye to Ray, where he leaves. Before Ray left, they, they harvested and threshed the oats and sold enough to John McCann along with the hog to make rent. They sold him the cow as well and used some of that money to buy Raymond's ticket. So that left a decent stock of oats, cabbage, and turnips, a small sum of money, and the three hens to last until the promise of Ray's American dollars. Across Ireland, hunger was falling into famine, but the Doyles were managing better than most of their neighbors. Jenny and her family were getting off lucky. His last night, Raymond and Jenny stayed awake while the children slept. They didn't speak. They hardly moved. It was more wrestling than lovemaking, really. That's how tightly they clung to each other. They were like a hard knot, fixed at the eyes, his elbow locked around the nape of her neck, her thighs clenched round his hips. She gripped his hair, his shoulder blades, his knuckles. Her fingers would remember him, every inch of him. They stayed like that until the dread dawn. When he finally, sp when he finally spoke, his voice was a promise. I will never let you go. I am definitely going to cry. They were all up early, and when Raymond was dressed and ready, he lingered by the cottage door. He had been insistent that there would be no American wake, that his neighbors would not gather to see him off, that his family would not mourn his going. So Jenny tried to honor his wishes by hiding the worst of her terror from him. I'll be back in the summer, sure, when the crop comes good, Raymond said to his wife. He kissed her mouth, and then he held, her, he held his nose against her neck. He breathed her in, the scent of her. Their children stood around them in the silence. Husband and wife tipped their foreheads together for a moment, and when Ray leaned away, he only nodded at her, and she nodded back. She turned away quickly before he could notice her tears. "'You'll be a good girl, Mara. You'll help your mammy,' he said, giving his eldest daughter a squeeze around the shoulders. "'I will, Daddy, of course,' Mara said, and her eyes were shiny, but she never betrayed herself any further than that. She was solid.' The two little, littler girls were blubbery and sad. They clung round their daddy's neck and begged him not to go, but he kissed their cheeks and landed them down on the floor with a thump and a tickle. If you're good, I'll bring you back something from America, he said, but not if there's tears. Poppy did her best to dry her face with the back of her hand. Like sweeties, she asked, or a doll? Something like that, Ray said, but Maggie couldn't be won over so easily. The big sloppy tears were still rolling on her pink cheeks. Go on, Ray said, swatting her backside. Maggie scampered away to her mother. Michael was the worst. He was inconsolable. Why can I not go with you? He asked his father for the hundredth time. Ray was down on one knee, and Michael stood in closer to his father. I'm big enough to work. You're big enough to work the farm, Ray answered him. That's why you have to stay, son. Your mother needs you here to keep things ticking over until I get back. We can't leave the girls all on their own, right? Michael shook his head. He was nearly ten now. He hadn't cried in two years. He wanted to show his father how grown he was. He wanted Ray to be proud of him, but in this moment it was all too much. He crumbled in against his father's broad chest. He fell in like a rag doll, and when Ray put his arms around him, he felt tiny there, curled up on his father's knee. "'What time is the ship sailing?' Jenny asked, to cover the sounds of Michael's sniffles. "'God forbid you should miss the boat.' Ray nodded again. He gave Michael one last squeeze and then kissed the top of his head. "'I'll be off, all right,' he said. But Michael wouldn't let go." Jenny had to peel her son off Raymond. It was a horrible scene altogether. Michael was wretched, writhing. Any thought of wanting to please his father was abolished entirely by grief. In the yard, Jenny held on to Michael so he wouldn't chase his father down the road when he had to go. Her son was almost too strong for her, getting big as he was, but he wept like a little baby, and in truth, Jenny wept along with him. Their three daughters followed Ray to the top of the ridge in their front field, and there they stood, staring after him as he went, their eyes already stretching, trying to cover that growing distance. Poppy and Maggie cried over each other, holding hands, their little faces turning all puffy and red, and Ginny sat on the three-legged stool beneath the crooked branch of the blackthorn tree, with Michael wailing and thrashing about on her knee. She pinned his little arms into his sides. "'Daddy's gone, gone,' she said. They all needed to believe it, to accept it. He's gone.' And then a grief stole over her that was so pure it was nearly like the chaste agony of losing a child. A sickening feeling of horror and panic. Jenny had suffered that kind of anguish only once before in her life when she lost a baby in between Michael and Maggie. That time had been bottomless in its despair, and it was hard to believe that Raymond's departure could feel that brutal. Jenny hadn't been prepared for the enormity of it, but there was something primal in that farewell. Maybe it came from Michael, from the immediacy of his pain, 
but whatever it was, it inspired a feeling of near certainty that she would never see Raymond again. The sweet corners of his half-moon eyes. It caught her by surprise, rendered her senseless. She held on to Michael, and she cried until her head pounded, until Mara put her hand on her mother's hair. She patted her mammy's neck. It's all right, Mara said. Stop crying now, mammy. And Ginny felt like such an amadon then, that Mara could be brave when she wasn't. So that was the thing that snapped her out of it, at least in her body. Ginny snuffled and heaved, and then after a moment she shuddered quietly. She wiped her tears with the corner of her apron, kissed Michael on top of the head, and after a few minutes of rocking, he too stopped fighting and turned toward his mother. He buried his face against her and cried just loosely and quietly until he slept. She laid him inside on her own bed to recover, his face like her own, all pink raw and covered with snot and tears. Those first days without Raymond were like learning a new way of breathing for Ginny, like her lungs had been folded in half, and she had to discover how to get by without air. At nights she shuddered and shivered under their blanket. She prayed for sleep that did not come. Her eyes yawned open in the dark, and she imagined Raymond stretched out on some bunk or berth, sleeping heavily in the steerage of that America-bound ship. She imagined him rocking gently on the waters, like a baby in its mother's arms, and some nights she cursed him for that imagined comfort. She wished to trade places with him, to be the one whose grief and terror might be allayed by adventure. If she was gone to America, all full of purpose and energy, to save her family, well, wouldn't that be all right in the end? Better than staying here, waiting in fear and sorrow, all the joy gone out of life entirely, watching her children grow tough and skinny. America would be the greatest distraction. What would the light be like there, among the tall ships in the harbor, the teeming city streets? And the letters they took to Father Brennan to read, Raymond's brother Kevin said there were more languages on the streets of New York than he ever knew existed. Ginny wondered what they might sound like, those unknown tongues, fighting for space, cleaving their sing-song through the air, and all the families from right round the world all packed in tight, living in beside one another, cooking their foods, spicy foreign steam billowing from their New York City windows. She wondered at the girls and women inside those windows, sweating at their hearths and cauldrons, swiping loose hair from their sticky foreheads. She wondered if Raymond would meet a beautiful young thing who smelled of chutney or pepper. I'm only looking to see what time it is. I'm never reading that passage again. (laughs) I apologize, (laughs) everyone. (laughs) Are we too late to do a a Magella? I don't think we should do a a short Magella. Any idea what I should read? Oh, my, I knew you were going to say that. Oh, maybe I could read from the labor scene. Oh, in the beginning of the book. What do you think? Labor scene is actually a pretty cool scene. I'll I'll have to cut it off in the middle because it's long. But I'll I'll. Uh, you guys are in for a real treat. Woo! The labor scene. During my twenty seventh hour of labor, I realized I would need therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled so hard, I feared the bar would snap and splinter, and nurses would be stabbed in the head with the shrapnel and killed instantly falling to the floor with their mouths and eyes opened in horrified O's, their last act of motion in the world, the release of a ballpoint pen from a lifeless hand, the languorous roll of a bick across the laminate floor. It was shift change again. My third nurse was leaving to go home for the night. She was sporty and olive with almond eyes and swingy black hair. She could have been anyone, but she was my third nurse, and she was going home for the night to eat a lean cuisine and stretch out on her couch and pretend to read Borges while she watched The Bachelor. Tonight was the finale. Would Sebastian choose Crystal or Shenandoah? <laughs> I, pa- I passed out. The contractions were ferocious because the doctor had turned off my epidural so I could feel them. As if I was in danger of not feeling the eight-pound child who was attempting to exit my body. He was a male doctor, and he thought the pain would help me push, which is like the philosophy that waterboarding people helps, helps people confess to hiding weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> Between contractions, I lost consciousness. Or maybe I just went to sleep. I was likely very tired, though I couldn't have said so with any conviction because all I could really feel was pain. Like fire and knives and every other cliche of pain that's ever been muttered, all of it patched up together in a big ball like in that video game where you start off with a little teeny ball that rolls around the room and picks up thumbtacks and paper clips until it gets big enough to start picking up buckets and small dogs and then eventually cows and then barns and then skyscrapers and then planets. My pain picked up incongruous, unrelated, worldwide pains in the exact same way, so that first I could feel stubbed toes and paper cuts and smacked funny bones, and then I could feel the farmer in Ipswich twisting his 
back in spasms under the weight of some greasy machinery, the child in New Delhi who had just run her hand under the sewing machine at the factory where she worked, the 22-year-old Hollywood waitress who didn't get the part even after she laughed the paunchy casting director, no easy feat, within easy earshot of his assistant and two other hopefuls, and then finally, facial burns, chemotherapy, suicide. My new nurse came in, and she wasn't a new nurse at all. She was an old nurse, my first nurse, who had gone home the evening before, slept all night, gotten up in the morning, measured and eaten her special K with skim milk, gone to the gym, had a manicure, lingered in a coffee shop with an ex-boyfriend, now married, and finally returned to work, where I was still in labor, 27 hours later. Still here, she said? My goodness, going for a record? I hated her. I thought about the violence of this beginning, so different than I had imagined. My birthing ball mocked me from its corner. I pushed. Well, not me. My muscles pushed. I grunted and strained and prayed. The nurse held my knee open on one side and Leo held the knee on the other. They tried to comfort me. They told me I was brave and doing a great job. I didn't have much choice. I squeezed my eyes shut so that my eyeballs wouldn't spring free of my head. My baby would be born, and during the big, beautiful moment of arrival, he, she would get hit in the head with my runaway eyeball. <laughs> and An inauspicious greeting. Welcome to the world, baby. Ping. Oh, don't mind that, sweetie. No, no, don't cry. It's just mommy's eyeball. Another contraction. I heaved, I pushed, I pushed, I pushed. It was the 28th hour now. I passed out again, and the nurse put a damp washcloth over my face to cool me. I tried to breathe in, and I was sucking terry cloth. My nose was blocked. I panicked and tried to shake the washcloth loose. You're not helping, I wanted to scream. I'm claustrophobic. Get that thing off my face. But I was unconscious again. And then another contraction. I was crying now, the tears just slipping down my face, indistinguishable from all the other fluids. C-section, the doctor said. He was talking to Leo, and I'm pretty sure there were more words in the sentence than that. Their voices were traveling over and back in front of me now. They were saying more words. You told me you could see the head, I cried with my real out loud voice. I was sobbing, wasting precious energy on that. Three hours ago, what happened? Doesn't labor sound like fun, everyone? Makes you want to go right out and have a baby, right? (laughs) (laughs) That was Janine Cummins. Author of the Crooked Branch in bookstores now. Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our engineer is Andrea Milton. Our intern is Morgan Senior Michael Dixon. Theme music is by War Matthews of Clean Cuts. And please send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast is Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or use your favorite podcasting app. Viewer source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>